Um, what's going on here? Well, as Rich so ably started off the series for us, uh, looking at the Easter story last week with the portrayal of Jesus, uh, we're now moving on through, through our run-up to Easter, this, this four-week series. And uh, this is really the story that's happening during Easter week. So, so let me quickly recap. This is the week, the last week of Jesus' ministry in Israel. The last week before he dies and before he's raised from the dead. What, what goes on in that week? Well, on the Sunday, Jesus enters Jerusalem in triumph and the crowd adores him and worships him and welcomes him. On Monday, he clears the temple. He throws the money changers out. On Tuesday, he's teaching in the temple to the people. And on the Wednesday, the council starts to plot to kill him. On Thursday, Jesus celebrates the Jewish festival that's called the Passover, an event that us as Christians now call, call the Last Supper. And on Thursday night, as Rich took us through last week, he's betrayed. He's betrayed by Judas, who hands him over to his enemies, the religious leaders, and he's betrayed by Peter, his friend, who claims he knows nothing about him. And this is where we pick up the story in Luke 22, straight after Peter's denial. And so we get mockery, cruel mockery. Look with me again in verse 63. Time and again, in Jesus' ministry, he's predicted that he's going to be rejected and he's going to suffer before his death. For example, Luke 18, 32, or Mark 9, 12. And here we see the full reality of it. There are multiple men guarding Jesus at this point. Do they think he's a violent man? Are they worried the disciples are going to rescue him? The mob would rise up? We don't know. The guards are probably temple guards, not Roman legionaries, who are going to see them in a bit. And they mock him and they beat him. They blindfold him, teasing him, and say, ask him to prophesy. So they're implying he's not a prophet. And if you've ever been blindfolded or have your, have your face covered for a while, but it gives you a great sense of vulnerability and a great sense of you can't, you, you can't see what's around you. You're, you're really sensitive to what's around you. And how terrifying to be to be blinded and to have people hitting you from all directions. How ironic, because he knew who they were. He knew who each one was. He could have actually answered that question if he'd wanted to. And he says, it goes on, and Luke says, there are many other insulting things. These are frontline soldiers. Frontline soldiers haven't always been known for their restrained language and for their uh, sensibilities. This is God's son. This is God's son. They're making rude and offensive comments about. This is the eternal Lamb of God. How incredible. Turning your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, over towards the end of the Bible there. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 19. Say Amen when you get there. Oh, so you can all say amen at one time, actually, rather than sort of amen and amen and amen and amen. You know, just. First Peter 2, verse 19. This is Peter, and he's writing to the early churches, and he says this, For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. 
But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, that is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Always a good verse for kids, this, I think. You know, how often when a, a kid is being disciplined, do they say, oh, it's not fair. You know, but, well, if it's something that's actually happened, yes, it's very fair. It's entirely fair. And okay, if it didn't happen, then maybe they've got a point. Um, and at this time, look how Jesus is setting an example for Christians of how to suffer physical attacks and insults. And he places himself under the judgment of his father. And this, of course, was Jesus' own teaching from earlier in the Bible. Turn the other cheek. What he taught, he did. He was no hypocrite. But what we're going to look at in part today is three trials. And in the first trial, we see prejudice justice. Prejudice, judge and jury. We come down into verse 66. Let's face it, there's, no, there's only going to be one result from this trial. Let's not kid ourselves. In an impartial court of law, they're going to listen to the evidence, they're going to hear both sides, someone's going to make arguments, they're going to weigh it all up. Here, the council meets, and they already know what the answer is. They already know what they're going to do, even before they've heard any evidence. Can you sense that? Can you sense the, council, the council's agenda? They want this guy from Galilee dead. Boy, do they want him dead. And they don't care what the cost is. And can you see how they pay just lip service to the law, doing the minimum? It says, it says at daybreak, the council of the elders of the people. They couldn't pass a sentence during night hours. They had to do it during daylight hours. That was their own rules. So what did they do? First thing in the morning, as soon as they can, they get him up there, bang, 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 job done, he's off to pilot. And bear in mind, the, the council here is made of the chief, chief priests and the teachers of the law. Well, most of them would have been there last night when they arrested Jesus in the garden. So they've already arrested him, then they're going to be the jury and they're going to be the judge. And they ask, if you are the Christ, tell us. There are other questions recorded in other Gospels, but this is the, this is the key question. This is the one that Luke's recorded, because this is the one that really matters here. And Jesus, you know, when he replies, look at, look at this reply. He knows, he knows their hearts are hard. He knows where they are. If I tell you, you will not believe me. Someone with a hard heart can hear anything from you. It won't make any difference. You can give them any kind of proof, any kind of evidence you want to. If their heart is hard, they're not changing their position. He says, if I asked you, you would not answer. Jesus, remember, taught so often by asking questions rather than just making statements. 
who'd been up for three years. He'd been telling, many of the Pharisees were there when he told people about the kingdom of God. And some people, you know, even today say they want all kinds of proofs. I want, you know, if, if only there was a God, he would prove it. If only, you know, why didn't he come now when there's television and all those kinds of things? If God was real, why can't he do a miracle for me here and now? We see here, even if someone has undeniable proof, it still may not change their opinion. It still might not change their heart. Because their heart is hard. It's the Holy Spirit who's going to change their heart. It's not going to be smart arguments or, or that kind of thing. It's through the Holy Spirit we bring ourselves to faith in Jesus, not through anything else. And in verse 69, Jesus tells them about a new reality. Look with me there, verse 69. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. This has already been prophesied. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And we've even seen it in sermons recently. You may remember Rich preaching on uh, Stephen in the book of Acts. And he said, well, you remember there when uh, Stephen looks up into heaven and he says, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But there's something else going on here that, that isn't straight away apparent. The Son of Man is going to be seated at the right hand of God and so the council, the council he's talking to, are no longer going to be the judges of the Jews. It is now going to be Jesus. And he says, says the beginning of verse 69, but from now, this is a new point, this is a new reality from this point. The council aren't happy. The answer, second, that isn't a clear enough answer to them. So they ask, are you then the son of God? So they go in again. And Jesus comes back straight away. You are right in saying I am. Some people will say that Jesus was a great teacher and just a great teacher. And that's true, he was a great teacher. But they'll also say that he never claimed to be the Son of God. That is not true. Here, he clearly says that he is the Son of God. And not only that, we go, not only because he says it there, but we also know because of the council's reaction. The council, they are experts in Jewish law. They know exactly what's going on here. And they understand straight away that in their view, he's just broken at least the first three of the Ten Commandments when he's made that statement, in their view. And so they say, yep, that's blasphemy. He's just claimed to be God. We've heard it from his own lips. That's all we need to hear. In fact, that's their jealousy. If they'd admitted he was the Son of God, all their personal power, all the statements they'd made, all of what people thought of them, their whole reality would have changed. It was a threat to their very way of life. Are we so concerned that we would have to change our life or lose status? Or people would think different of us 
if we surrendered to Jesus Christ? Even though we've heard the truth? Are we as hard-hearted as the council are? So it was a prejudiced, a prejudiced set of judges. However, in, go move on then, verse, uh, chapter 23, verse 1, we go into the second trial. Technical legal phrase here, double jeopardy. This is not a uh, uh, game show jeopardy. That's a different thing. We'll come to that in a minute. This is double jeopardy. I'll explain that, what that means in a bit. The council didn't have the authority to sentence him to death. They couldn't do that under Roman law. They had to take him to Pilate. And so they head off to see, see Pilate. Now, who's Pilate? Now, he was the Roman governor. He wasn't actually based in Jerusalem. His, his place was actually in Caesarea, but he's come to Jerusalem because it's the Passover. There's about half a million Jews in Jerusalem. He wants to make sure it's not going to get out of control. So he's come down with his troops to keep things uh, under control. Uh, as an aside, in 1961, archaeologists unearthed a stone tablet from this time with Pilate's name on it. So we know it was that. We know it was the man. And an aside on the aside. Uh, and we've got to remember, well, you know, this stuff we're reading in the Bible, this is history. This has actually happened. This is not myth. Things like this archaeology and other things remind us that Jesus was a real man walking in a real place, doing real things. It's not just something that's been made up. We can actually, we know that from things like the archaeology. That confirms it. Anyway, so Pilate had already had to deal with some disturbances in Jerusalem. And in actual fact, he lost his position uh, sort of four or five years after this when a, a similar thing got out of hand. So we know that there's some real issues there. The council bring in Jesus. Now they know that Pilate won't care about blasphemy. Yeah, Romans had all kinds of gods, so they're not going to worry about that. So they've got to come up with something else. So they fabricate some, some charges. They say he's been misleading the nation. They've been forbidding, he's been forbidding people to, to pay taxes to Caesar. Yeah, we always know paying taxes is a big deal for any ruler. You know, got to pay the troops, got to pay the servants, all that kind of thing. Keeps the robes nice. Uh, and that Jesus had claimed to be the king. Notice that Pilate, Pilate then focuses on the third question, ignores the first two. You can tell the first two are like, yeah. But he's bothered about the third one because being claimed to be the king, okay, that's rebellion against Rome. That, that's, that's the significant one. So, so Pilate asks Jesus straight out, verse 3, he asks him straight out, are you the king of the Jews? Yeah. Jesus comes back, yes, it is as you say. Now at this point there were three people who were kings of the Jews. Uh, one of them was Herod Agrippa. We're going to see him in verse 8 in a minute. And all three of them are the sons of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the one who tried to kill Jesus as a baby. And do you, and do you remember that story? When Jesus was a baby, Herod's trying to kill him. Do you remember that the wise men came and they asked where is the one who's been born the king of the Jews? So, in one sense, yes, Jesus was the king of the... And you remember how Herod got grumpy about that? Boy, did he get grumpy. Um, but, although Jesus says, yes, it is as you say, if you look over in John chapter 18, either, either turn there now or, or check it out later, 
that has a bit of a, a more explanation on this part of the gospel story. And, and Jesus says there, yes, he is a king, but his kingdom is not a physical kingdom. It is a spiritual kingdom. So yes, he's the king. Yes, he's the king of the Jews, but in a spiritual sense, not as Herod was. But hold on a minute. Something else is happening here. Verse 4. The crowd is referred to as the first time. This is no longer just the council. We've got the crowd. We've got a bit of a mob. So when Pilate says Jesus is innocent, he gets a big reaction there. And he's starting to worry less about justice and he's more thinking about a riot kicking off. They insist. They insist. And so Pilate's starting to get a bit nervous. But don't worry. He's seen a way out. He's seen a nice little way out. He's from Galilee. Let's ship him off to Herod. Now, it's a long-standing principle of law that you cannot be tried for the same crime twice. That's called double jeopardy. But... Pilate's not worrying about law anymore. He's wanting to stop a riot. He's, going, he's stopping trying to not take the can himself. He wants to keep calm rather than administer justice. So he forgets about double jeopardy and ships him off to Herod. And so that then becomes the, the third trial. Entertainment, not justice. I don't know if this is because we've been out of the country a while. I don't know if, is Judge Judy a UK show? Okay, so this, so this is a show in the States, and I'm pretty sure they'd have them over here, where it's a TV show and it's a real trial. So there's a real judge, uh, it's a real case, usually a very minor case, you know, disputes with neighbours, those kind often paternity cases, to be honest with you. Uh, and there's a studio audience and they're kind of like the jury. Okay, so, so think Jerry Springer but with a real judge. That kind of thing, you know. Um, and this is what is happening here. This is entertainment. This trial. Herod's got no interest in justice. Now Herod's come to Jerusalem, again it's the Passover, Herod's come to Jerusalem because of the Jewish crowds. He's worried that half a million Jews in one place might kick up and overthrow him as king. Remember, he's the king of, of Judea. So, verse 8, it says it's pleased. He's pleased when Jesus comes over. If you think about the Gospel of Luke, you'll often hear Herod referred to uh, and, and this thing about Herod being interesting in Jesus often crops up. He's wanted to see him. He's a worker of miracles. He wants to know what the fuss is all about. Uh, in Luke 9, verse 9, it says that Herod is trying to see Jesus. In Luke chapter 13, the Pharisees tell Jesus that Herod's out to kill him. Herod wants to see a miracle. Remember earlier on, Jesus has said, to the teachers, the only sign now he's going to show them is the sign of Jonah. The sign of being dead for three days. Now Jonah keeps cropping up. Here. 
Um, but Herod's going to ask lots of questions. Herod, Herod is uh, he's interested, so he asks lots of questions. Luke doesn't record for us exactly what questions. And Jesus is quiet. So in the other two trials, he, he'd give a bit of an answer. In this, he doesn't say anything. In Isaiah chapter 53, it says this, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Again, Isaiah, 700 years before, predicting what's going to be happening at this, in this, this week that is the centre of history. Why should he say anything? Why should Jesus say anything to Herod? This guy had been trying to kill him. Back in chapter 13 of Luke, we saw that. Herod's father, Herod the Great, had also tried to kill him when he was a baby. This Herod, Herod Agrippa, he'd had John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, beheaded on a whim. Why should he say anything to these people? But there are the council, there are the council off the side accusing him. Eh, look what he's done. And Herod realises he's going to get nothing from Jesus. So realising this, I mean, Herod's looking for entertainment, he's looking for something going on, he realises that nothing's going to be, he's not going to be getting any more, and so Herod and his soldiers mock Jesus, trying to get some entertainment value. But he doesn't make a judgement, he just sends him back. Perhaps he's indifferent, Perhaps Herod's worried like, like Pilate is about making a statement that was going to incite the Jews and cause a riot. Perhaps he just wanted to dodge a political position because he's bright enough to spot the fact that Pilate didn't want to make a position and so he sent him over to him and he's like, no, 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 no I'm not falling for that one. You can have him back. And many of you will have experienced that in the workplace, I'm sure, where your colleague gives you a particularly nasty thing to do and you go, no, oh, no, you have it back. And it says there at the end of this section, it says how, uh, verse 12, that day Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this they'd been enemies. Again, in the Psalms, hundreds of years before, it says this, Psalm, Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and his anointed. Right there. Herod wanted to meet Jesus only out of desire to be entertained. Do you? Is that what you want? Is that why you're here? Is that why you go to church? Is that why you hang around? Are you into conspiracy theories? You know, that's your thing. You like a good conspiracy theory, so I want to hear this stuff and then make arguments about it. Perhaps you just like to sing songs. It's good to sing songs. But like Herod, are you not really getting to know Jesus? Do you just want to feel good and be happy? Jesus told us to take up our cross and follow him and that is hard. That is not entertainment. But it is so much more rewarding than just entertainment. It makes me think whether, whether any of these three groups of judges actually, actually did believe Jesus on some level. Did they actually recognize him as the Messiah and as the King of the Jews? I, I don't know. 
maybe on some level, but they just couldn't bring themselves to, to actually admit it finally. And the final injustice an innocent man is condemned an innocent man is condemned and a guilty one goes free so jesus goes back to pilate pilate calls the council well they've come back with him from herod so and the crowd together and perhaps he's looking for the the crowd to give him an out here to to say no 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 it's all okay now just let him go He reiterates the charge and he says he's examined Jesus in front of them. So it's not been a behind closed door thing. And for the second time he says, this man, he's innocent. And by the way, Herod sent him over and he says he's innocent. So he's trying to satisfy the council and the crowd. And so he says, you know, okay, he's innocent, but all right, I'll punish him. And let him go. Well, that's a strange definition of innocent as far as I'm concerned. It's becoming more and more about politics and less and less about justice. In Matthew's account of this, in Matthew 27, it says, the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. So the chief priests and the elders have been coming around, stirring up the crowd. And the crowd is united. They're united in saying, give us Barabbas. Give us that guy. Yeah, we know he's a rebel. We know he's committed murder. We know he's not innocent. We want him. Give us Barabbas. Are they saying that Jesus is worse than the Barabbas? Are they saying Barabbas is one of us and Jesus isn't? Is they saying that blasphemy isn't murder? Pilate wants to release Jesus. He knows he's innocent. He appeals to the crowd who the first time cry out, crucify him, crucify him, totally destroy this guy in the most shameful and humiliating way that you can. This is not about punishing him or just killing him. This is about shaming him and disgracing him. And they keep shouting and they're insistent. See how it says crucify him, crucify him, how they repeat it to emphasise it. This is a mob and they want blood. Pilate again says, Jesus is innocent. He said it in verse 4, in verse 14, sort of in 15, verse 22, and sort of in verse 20. He said, he's innocent. The crowd shouts. The crowd insists. They demand, Jesus must be crucified. And their shouts prevail. They persuade Pilate. Or he gives in to them. Or he believes maybe that this is the lesser of two evils, killing one innocent man rather than having a riot. He grants their demand in verse 24. How does this work? How does this work in your mind? Not guilty, but sentenced to death. He releases Barabbas and hands Jesus over to execution. In Pilate's eyes, a Galilean teacher who everybody seems to want dead anyway is a small sacrifice for keeping half a million Jews in order. Pilate and Herod and the council, they've all justified their own positions in, in their own minds. 
council because they said it was blasphemy. Herod, because he didn't want anything to do with it. He thought it was Pilate's problem. And Pilate, just as a way of keeping, keeping justice and keeping order. How ironic. Think about this. Jesus is going to be the judge of each one of these people on the day of judgment. We all make assumptions about our sense of justice. We all think our sense of justice is superior. It's God's nature, remember, to be justice. His justice is perfect. And it is that justice that these judges are going to experience. And yet, and yet in this injustice that's been put on Jesus, is our hope. That is our hope. The injustice in Jesus being condemned to death, where not only is he innocent of these charges, he's the most innocent man who ever lived, because he's innocent of everything, he's done nothing wrong. And when we are guilty of such huge offence to God and to each other, and have not yet been punished, this injustice is our hope. If we put our trust in Jesus... Because of his death on the cross, we can, through faith and repentance, be saved from that judgment. He will serve our sentence. Those who believe in Jesus are like Barabbas. The guilty are set free while Jesus is crucified in our place. Yes, Jesus was surrendered to their will. And yet their will, flawed though it was, was always God's plan. It was his plan for the beginning. Let me be really clear with you. I want you to be in no doubt. I am going to be judged for my life. We are all going to be judged for our lives. Maybe it will look like a court, like one of these places. Maybe in front of the council or Pilate. Maybe yes, maybe no. I'm sure it won't look like a courtroom with people with wigs and gowns and that sort of thing. And there's not going to be a jury because the judge is both the judge and jury because he's perfect. It's Jesus. But let's just imagine for a moment that it's exactly like a court. And, and I don't want to over-dramatise this I want to be really clear with you that this is going to be an exercise in imagination based on what the Bible tells us. I'll say that again. This is an exercise in imagination based on what the Bible tells us. I, want to, I trust the Holy Spirit's going to use it in your heart. Let me invite you just to close your eyes. You don't have to if you want to. Close your eyes. And imagine that you're in the public gallery of a courtroom and you're at the judgment of Ian Fenton. Let me take you there. Let me tell you what you might see. I will be called before the judge and he is radiant in light because he is light. I know as the accused that his judgments are always right and always perfect. I'm not going to experience what Jesus experienced here. He's not prejudiced, this judge. I'm not going to be tried twice for the same thing. There's only one chance of this. And this is certainly not an entertainment for someone. 
There are no witnesses waiting to testify. Why not? Because the judge knows me better than I know myself. He knows all the things that I've done better than I can ever remember them. And I stand there. And I hang my head as they they read out the list of charges. And it takes a very long time. All of my sins, all of the things I've done, the things I failed to do, the bitter, the evil thoughts, the self-centeredness, the murder, the pride, the lust, the theft, the idolatry, everything. And I hang my head in shame. I'm asked, how do I plead? What am I supposed to say? What am I supposed to say? I know that was all true. I say, guilty as charged. What else can I say? It's all true. There's no point in denying it because I am the very worst of sinners. My fate is in the hands of the judge. Now look at his hands. As he puts them on the bench, and I notice they're pierced with scars. And he says to me, you are guilty as charged. And the sentence is death. It has to be death. Yeah, I have to be guilty as charged. What kind of judge would say that I was innocent after reading out a set of charges like that and after, being, after hearing me say that I was guilty? And he knows I am anyway. And then he stands up. And he comes round from behind the bench and he says, I know you. I love you. I gave my life to save you. I have already served your sentence. Not only have I served it, but I have given you my right standing. Not only do I declare you innocent because of that today, but my father has told me that he's adopted you into our family. And he wants you to go from this courtroom back to our house. Why would he say that? Why would he say that? To say that I am grateful to hear those words is just the most huge understatement in the universe. It should have been me. I've done nothing to deserve that. I am being treated better than I could ever deserve. The sense of guilt I have is turned at that point to total joy. You can open your eyes now if you've got them closed. As I said, that is an exercise in imagination, but the facts will be the same. That he, that, and that is why he is my saviour. That is why I am his, and I will follow him, imperfect and flawed though I definitely am, for all of my days. I will follow him. Now let's swap. Imagine you're the one on trial. Imagine you're the one standing there. You are going to that courtroom too. But remember this, Jesus is eager to make the same judgment about you. I beg you, I beg you, I beg you, do not enter that courtroom without having put your trust in the totally just judge. Do not enter that courtroom without trusting in Jesus Christ. Won't you follow that judge and that king? 
Won't you follow that Saviour? Yes, the cost is high, but it is so worth it. Won't you taste and see that he is good? This is why we have hope. This is the hope that I urge you to. This is why we have hope in this injustice. Our hope sits in Jesus Christ because of the injustice that he went through. It's the only place our hope will pay off. Why will it pay off? Why do we know it will pay off? Because he's already done it. He's already done the work. Like Barabbas, because he was condemned, we can go free. Mr. Ford said on being acquitted, my mind is going in all kinds of directions, but it feels good. I can tell you, it does feel good to be acquitted. Really good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Holy Spirit given to us to help us understand your word, to help us. Thank you that we can have hope in Jesus Christ. Hope because although he was innocent, he was condemned to death. Hope that through our faith in your son Jesus Christ, hope that if we turn from our rebellion and wrongdoing, we will hear, hear those words. that we are not guilty and we are adopted children and that we have a place in your house forever. Amen.